0: Hey everyone. Happy holiday seasons. Uh, We are in episode one of Hashing for the Holidays, a Bitcoin Magazine limited series podcast all about mining. Today's episode is going to focus on the FUD that surrounds Bitcoin mining and a topic that we hope sentiment has shifted since the infamous Newsweek article in 2017 titled, Bitcoin mining on track to consume all of the world's energy by 2020. So alongside me in this discussion is three fiery personalities in the mining space Gentlemen, let's go around and give a quick intro. Ed, do you want to start?
1: Sure. Um, Hi, everyone. I'm Edward Evenson. Um, I'm the head of business development at Brains and Slush Pool. And we do all things software for Bitcoin mining, basically. Mining pool, firmware for the miners, management system, other stuff being developed in the works as well. And we've been at it a while now. That's about it.
0: First Bitcoin pool ever, right? Yeah. (laughs) Thanks, Ed. Kevin, do you want to go next?
2: Yeah, sure thing. Um, So I'm Kevin Zane. Uh, I'm one of the VPs of Business Development at Foundry Digital, which is a subsidiary of DCG. At Foundry, we offer a whole suite of services uh, for miners, including financing, uh, a mining pool and advisory services.
0: Amazing. And last but not least, our king of FUD dispelling in Bitcoin mining, Nick, do you want to give a quick intro?
3: Hi, I'm Nick Carter. I'm not actually a miner, uh, so I'm the the one non miner in this group, uh, but I spend a lot of time with miners, um, write about it, and occasionally go on TV and and get yelled at um, and try and uh, stick up for the proof work industry.
0: Awesome. Okay, so all of us have been in this industry for a few years now, and we've seen the barrage barrage of mainstream media articles around Bitcoin, but all from very different perspectives. And I think this year in particular, there's been a lot of efforts to dispel some of these claims, especially with data. So we had Cambridge Center for Alternative Finance come out um, with a report on locations of miners. We saw the creation of the Bitcoin Mining Council, and then we saw Kevin and the team at Foundry release information on their pool um, energy and location data. So let's start with this, this data sharing, right? A lot different than what we had in the past. Do you guys all see this as a positive or a negative for the industry?
1: Uh, I'll go first just because it's short and sweet for me. I think it's a positive. Uh, The more data we have on the energy usage and more importantly, the type of energy usage um, globally is going to give us a much better uh, argument. So I guess you can say ammunition in the future when speaking with regulators and various governments that are going to use any – excuse they want to try and sort of prevent an industry that they could potentially see as a threat to, uh, their state money.
3: Yeah. I, I, think a lot of the fear, um, was grounded in total uncertainty and, and the idea that Bitcoin mining was this incredibly black boxy industry where no one, it was, you know, perceived in the West to be these unaccountable Chinese miners using coal power, which to a certain extent it was. And the, you know, quote unquote, hash rate migration and the, you know, the emergence of these disclosure bodies in particular, the BMC, I see that as very positive because, and, and just the fact that miners, are, so many of them are publicly traded now also, you know, it, it dispels this notion a little bit that it's just these unknown, you know, unaccountable like Chinese miners. I mean, it's, that's not strictly the case today. Obviously, there's a lot more we could do with regards to the data, and it's certainly imperfect. Um, you know, and, and I have I have critiques of the way the BMC does it, for instance. But uh, yeah, generally speaking, I think it's a very positive development. And also, the you know, the proof is in the pudding. You know, Bitcoin miners are able to exploit more renewable sources of energy than other industries, and so the facts are in their favor.
2: Yeah, So I'll just chime in Then I'm in total agreement with what, what Ed and uh, Nick Harry mentioned. Also add in that um, part of uh, the, in, the industry is driving more towards institutional adoption, right? We have all the public listed companies and now uh, large energy companies and sovereign wealth funds, nation states are looking at mining and having more transparency dispels a lot of the, the FUD that we're tackling today. Um, so I think uh, the numbers are largely on our side, right? the data is there it's just a matter of curating it presenting it in an easy digestible format
1: yeah i think that last point's important too because a large part of it's going to be education right because even that old narrative that nick just mentioned about it being these unaccountable chinese miners using coal even that was sort of stemming from ignorance because that was the smaller part of the year where that was the case when most of the miners were concentrated in xinjiang but for the majority of the year the vast majority of the hash power and China came from hydropower in Sichuan.
3: Yeah, the funny thing is that in certain corners of the press, they'll still report that Bitcoin mining is dominated by China and Chinese coal, and is just woefully out of date.
0: Nick, let's let's talk about um, how you criticize Bitcoin mining councils' data collection.
3: Yeah. So. I mean, I generally think it's a very good initiative and I 100% support it. Um, I think they could do more in terms of being transparent about the assumptions that go into the reports. Um, You know, for instance, I think Q3, they found that global Bitcoin mining was 57.7%. Uh, sustainable, which means you know, low carbon sources of energy. Uh, their sample, correct me if I am wrong, is in the thirties in terms of hash rate—thirty-ish uh, percent, thirty-five maybe.
0: Yeah, it's thirty-three percent, if I remember correctly.
3: And so, a lot of that fifty-seven percent number—I think the in-sample data was something like in the 60s, 65 percent sustainable. And so, they're assuming you know that the out-of-sample, the other two-thirds of hash rate. Is less sustainable, but still, you know, reasonably so. And you know, it's just not clear to me how they arrived at that figure. And so, what I would like to see would just be more decomposition in terms of, um, you know, what the assumptions are, especially in the out-of-sample, uh, because that was my what I noticed about the reaction of the first disclosure is people just didn't trust it. Obviously, it's going to be uphill battle getting people to trust like an industry group. But um, yeah, that that's sort of the bit where I think they've fallen short so far.
0: Yeah, hopefully, you know, more room to grow there and, and um, you know, capabilities to continue to share data in a way that will help the industry moving forward. So I think it's helpful for us to all be critical of, of all of the data that we see, right? We shouldn't just accept things as face value, which, Ed, I know that you have been um, somewhat critical in our private group chats with one another <laughs> um, on data collection, do you want to do you want to double down there and, and let us know how you feel inside, Ed?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, one kind of um, like what you and Nick just highlighted with the the BMC that's coming from within the industry. So naturally, this is going to be a much bigger challenge for it to be taken seriously by outsiders. Um, but when you look at some other data collection points that are not necessarily miners or from within the industry, like the the Cambridge. um, What's the, I always forget the, what the actual thing stands for, Cambridge alternative energy uh, department or something. Center for alternative finance. And they were looking at the energy makeup of uh, Bitcoin miners around the world. And they've been attempting to do this for quite some time. I think the project started uh, back in 2019. And I had some problems with how the data was collected, although I liked what they were trying to do. Some of the issues I had with the data is that they would publish results months, I think like four to five, maybe even six months after it was collected um, at first. So this was seen to be a huge problem immediately because in the first big release, uh, they released data after a halving but they had collected all the data before the halving, which is a huge event in mining because you're cutting revenues in half overnight. So that's going to completely and dramatically shift the landscape of mining. And then two is their uh, methods for collection were primarily reliant on pools. And um, unless pools are actually doing IP mapping, they can only rely on where miners are connecting to their stratum servers. So say you have some miners in Norway, but your stratum servers in Germany, if they're connected to Germany, that hash rate is just going to be looking like it's coming from Germany. And this is apparent by uh, some of the data displayed, saying 4% of the global network hash rate or something came from Ireland, which we know not to be the case. It just shows that another way that miners sort of mask their data and keep their privacy is by the use of VPNs. So really, miners could be mining from anywhere, but if they use a VPN connection, they can make it look like they're mining from a different location. Um, And then lastly, I think the last major thing is that they made the mistake of not getting all the pools on board uh, with sharing data at once. So basically what happened is they released data from three pools and then started approaching other pools, I think, to try and get everyone on board. But the problem is if you list, uh, say, one pool comes on board and then that hash rate populates, you can easily identify where their hash rate is coming from. So there's a business interest to not do this and participate in this sort of data sharing. And then there's just some pools don't collect this data. Uh, because they respect their user's privacy and they don't want to uh, necessarily like give all of their users location data to a third-party organization regardless of any steps they uh, make to try to make it anonymous or like secure so uh, there's many factors about it i don't necessarily like but that being said i think it can be refined and improved over time
2: yeah i think those are all great points and i'll just add on that um In the past uh, with the Cambridge study, I think one of the flaws was that uh, in the data collection process, um, it was very skewed towards uh, Chinese pools, right? Those are the ones that volunteered a lot of the data and uh, mainly relied heavily on Chinese pools historically. Uh, A lot of the data is very skewed, right? Um, Geographically and regionally, and and more recently, um, because China banned uh, mining uh, domestically in China, all the pools that did contribute data, they masked the data and you had a sharp drop off of hash rate in China go from, I think it was 60% of the network straight down to zero, which we know is not the case. Uh, we know there's still mining going on in China, um, especially in, in the Xinjiang province, anywhere from 15 to 20% of the total network hash rate.
3: It's interesting. It's yeah. It's funny that everybody now talks about it as if China is literally zero percent of the network hash rate. Yeah,
2: I, I don't, and I don't think it'll ever actually hit zero percent. Um, I think there's always going to be some uh, scattered amount of mining from smaller groups. But if Xinjiang is actually really, uh, it's really fascinating because they operate quite uh, autonomously and a little bit separately outside the standard uh, Chinese provinces, um, and. Um, They've been able to kind of keep some more of their operations uh, online and bring back some larger, like medium sized operations. Elsewhere in China, you can't really get anything more than like five megawatts off the ground without getting caught. Um, And with Sichuan kind of wet season ending, um, I think that may be the last time we really see mining in a big way in Sichuan.
0: Yeah, that's, that, that is fascinating. I think that most people do kind of subscribe to the theory that there's absolutely no mining happening in China right now. Um, so it's, it's fascinating to hear that there definitely still is mining happening in China. Um, and, you know, do you think that those companies will ever be able to scale, Kevin?
2: I think it's going to be very difficult for them to continue scaling, right? Right now, it's just the economic incentives to turn miners on are so great that it's worth the risk. So I think over time, as money economics... Uh, become more competitive and the margins narrow or as we enter into more like a, uh, different cycles of Bitcoin mining. Right now it's a very bullish cycle still because so much of the hash rate was shut off in China. Um, I think about trend low and lower, but I don't think um, unless something fundamentally changes, I don't think there's going to be a huge resurgence of mining in China.
0: Yeah, it was, it was kind of fascinating for me. I thought when the like the news came out about, you know, China being turned off. Um, it was like so many people like lost their livelihood and like, you know, they built like infrastructure and roads and, you know, had like companies there to just then have to turn off immediately it seemed like it was really sad. It was kind of um, very American of us to be like, this is great. Hashtag is moving to America um, without thinking through like what that really meant for the companies that have been building and been the backbone of mining for since you know ASIC mining existed. So it's pretty fascinating. Um so to go back, and Kevin, I'm gonna start with you on this one. To go back to this question, um do you know, do we think that the next wave of of dragons that we need to slay will be internal crypto industry people who are trying to position proof of work as really negative as they're trying to launch their proof of stakes coins? Yeah,
2: Absolutely. I think um one of the challenges we have um busting up a lot is FUD is that it's very easy to make a splashy and noisy headline that catches attention, and the, the responses and the actual answers are very uh, nuanced, right? Um, it's no different than the irony that uh, Bitcoin mining has the potential to drive and probably is the best solution for uh, development in a renewables area, but that just seems so far out of the uh, left field for a lot of these people that are throwing foot at uh, the energy mix of Bitcoin mining. They can't accept that, and it usually takes... A five to 10 minute answer to even explain to someone why that that's the case. Right. And I think with, with a lot of the proof of stake projects that are coming about, um, they're able to be spun up so quickly that oftentimes they don't even actually provide that much value, right? They're a copy paste of existing projects um, that they just go with the same uh, playbook and run book that the other existing protocols have come out with, which is, oh, we we don't use as much energy as, as proof of work mining and this and that. Right. So, I think it's going to be definitely a challenge going forward uh, of kind of um, dispelling some of the uh, misinformation that's out there.
0: Ed or Nick, any thoughts on that?
3: It just, um, it, there, there seems to be so much path dependency in, in narratives, right? Because if, you know, proof of stake had just emerged from the blue, and you know, without Bitcoin existing, let's say, they would have never... Ever talked about that? You know their electricity consumption or the per transaction you know energy cost, right? And yet it's part of the marketing for every single base layer and L2 and everything now that you know they're doing this. They're doing the math around their per transaction energy cost. It's, and it's like, how is that a selling point? That's like a search engine saying, yeah, you know, each individual query you know, take some, um, you know, minuscule amount of of electricity, it's like, okay, well, no one cares. (laughs) Like, no one is evaluating digital services on that basis. Um, So it's just purely, like, motivated um, by trying to draw some opposition to Bitcoin. But it, you know, it's, it's a different taxonomical category, right? Like, a proof of stake network is doing something completely distinct from Bitcoin. Um, you know, they're a dime a dozen and they should be, um, they should be, you know, selling themselves on the basis of how they compete with each other, not on the basis of, you know, there's nothing unique about a proof of stake network saying, oh, we're, you know, we're the green network. That's literally every proof of stake network, every financial consortium that doesn't use proof of work. There's an, you know, a limitless number of those things. Um, and, and so, you know, selling themselves on the basis of being green is just like completely irrelevant. Um, they should sell themselves on the basis of, you know, whatever their capacity is meant to be, whatever, you know, smart contracts or expressibility they offer. It, it doesn't distinguish themselves from the crowd at all to say we're the sustainable network. Um, and and you know so it's just i find it kind of pathetic to see like solana you know doing their per transaction cost analysis how Um, many
0: nodes exist on solana like validating nodes isn't like in the 20s
3: i mean it's it's not even about the number really it's about like what happens in a crisis you know like you've got like peacetime decentralization wartime decentralization like when something goes wrong Solana Labs just sends the signal and they restart the blockchain. That's what they've done, (laughs) you know? So, like, it's not even about the absolute number of nodes. It's about where is power really vested. So, of course, it's not, you know, as decentralized. It's not even remotely as decentralized as Bitcoin. Um, And, uh, yeah, I I just, I find it so intellectually dishonest to focus on, in particular, on the per-transaction energy cost, because Bitcoin transactions do not carry energy payloads you know, like you, you only need to consume a unit of energy to make a Bitcoin transaction. That's just not how it works. But, but for whatever reason, that's the framing they all use.
1: Yeah. That's, that's one reason why I don't think um, this kind of, we have to worry about an internal attack because we have people like uh, the good Senator Elizabeth Warren uh, trying to use this erroneous metric of, you know, the amount of, energy like a single transaction would consume even though we know that's a useless metric because if half the energy uh there was half the energy being consumed to uh, secure the bitcoin network as there is now you could still have just as many transactions um it doesn't make any sense to look at it like that and so when i think there's a a, that level of sort of um of ignorance and just uneducation on you know the whole industry in general they're not going to really able to Be able to make uh, good distinctions between crypto and bitcoin or proof of work and proof of stake i think regulators kind of see them as a single category and are looking to uh, regulate them as such although we've seen some distinctions starting to kind of emerge through uh gensler um, who actually seems to know the difference between proof of work mechanisms and others but when it comes to the people actually legislating it's very clear that they don't have the nuanced perspective to actually Uh, really make significant distinctions between the two yet Uh, this may change but as of now I don't think we have to worry about so much from internal attacks too because when they do come or like there is this confrontation between regulators and the industry um, I have a feeling that they're going to want to talk about us as like a single happy family again and that we should band together for this common interest (laughs) Um, it's generally uh, the shit talking on proof of work begins when you know, there isn't a big infrastructure bill placed before Congress.
3: One, uh, one thing I'll say is, you know, it's funny to see this, this stuff backfiring, like with um, NFTs, like, you know, there was all this drama over the energy cost of NFTs being primarily issued on Ethereum. Obviously Ethereum is still currently proof of work and people went around, you know, they quantified it. They're like, Oh, you know, one NFT transaction is X many kilograms of CO2 or whatever. And that became so ingrained in the dialogue around NFTs because, generally speaking, like artists, like, and, you know, people on the left side of the political spectrum, they were just sort of against NFTs. They saw it as profiteering, they saw it as exploitative. And the climate angle was the best, you know, line of attack against that, right? It was like a really satisfying angle. It was like, oh, wow, not only are these things scammy and Ponzi like, but they're also, you know, Destroying the environment. That became so ingrained into the dialogue around NFTs that now NFTs on other platforms, even though they were selling themselves as clean NFTs, like Tezos NFTs were specifically being sold as clean NFTs. Now the popular discourse around any NFT on any platform is that it's environmentally unfriendly. So that's become completely ingrained in the popular consciousness. And regardless of where, regardless of which proof of stake network the nft is issued on the popular dialogue around if you look on twitter you'll see is this is environmentally destructive even though that critique emerged from within the industry that was meant to be the selling point for your like tezos nfts or solana nfts they specifically use that framing and now it's a gigantic self-own because people use it (laughs) against them now even though they're like proof of stake networks. so it's like you know, you kind of kind of question like the intelligence of people that are going to try and do friendly fire and and uh, and you know delegitimize portions of the crypto industry if they themselves are part of that industry.
0: Yeah, it's kind of a fascinating topic. Um, I wonder if if you control if you right click save if it helps with the environmentally uh, it
3: plants a tree yeah. Issue.
0: yeah, that's how you plant trees in NFT worlds, apparently. <laughs> Ed, you brought something up that I also wanted to talk about, like geopolitical location risk for miners. So after the Chinese shutdown, we saw more hash rate come online in a lot of different locations, including the US. But one specific location that we saw a rise in hash rate was in Kazakhstan because of the cheap power that existed there. Um, We've seen Kazakhstan now come down hard on miners and also impose a tax on mining. According to the Financial Times, They say the pressure on the grid caused by crypto mining operations has caused blackouts in towns and villages across six regions in the country since October. The Ministry of Energy estimates demand for electricity has increased 8% since the start of 2021, where mining companies began to migrate from China compared to the annual growth between 1% and 2% in a previous year. So that's Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan. In New York earlier this year, there was also an effort to freeze new mining endeavors with a bill that was ultimately shut down. And then, you know, on the other hand, you have a lot of places that are friendly. So we have in Kentucky, um, you know, tax relief for Bitcoin miners. And we've seen Texas welcome Bitcoin minings with both arms. So are we all at all nervous about people like Elizabeth Warren who are uneducated on the topic Are we, you know, do we think that regulation clampdown will continue to happen with the energy angle um, related to mining?
1: So uh, in like the grander scheme, I am worried that if the U.S. does do something stupid, that they really set an example for the rest of the world and a lot of the other Western industrialized powers will follow suit. Um, But I am optimistic that the chances of something happening stupid like that in the United States is much lower than other countries, say like Kazakhstan, because of how sort of power is distributed to a certain extent. I know there's always these like memes that, you know, everything's always concentrated, everything, you know, very few people are in control, the oligarchs are in power. But like relative to many other nation states, we do have a system of checks and balances and sort of a federal versus state system. And kind of like you highlighted, there's uh, different narratives depending on the state you're talking about. So New York, maybe some there's some effort to cease the expansion of uh, mining in the state. But in Texas, you have the opposite happening. And you have the governor speaking about Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining. You have him welcoming more and more business to the states. And you have the same happening in Wyoming, the same happening in Kentucky, Ohio. You could go, uh, I think, uh, Illinois is actually one of them as well. So, and what this means in sort of the uh, representative democracy of the United States is—you're going to have a lot of vested interest lobbying in the federal government, in state governments to protect themselves and their their investments and their industry, and you're going to have um, the jobs they create and the people that fill those jobs also vying for that same uh, position with aligned incentives. So, um, I think that it's getting to a point where uh, there's enough interest. And the relative regions within the United States, that there can't be the same thing that happened in China where there's just this blanket moratorium on mining. Um, but I think something very different can happen in other countries like Kazakhstan. Like, as we saw, the entire southern region of Kazakhstan shut off mining. A lot of mining is still happening in the north. Um, and I think this was primarily due to because they were like buying electricity from Russia to subsidize the south and they're basically giving it to their citizens at a loss or selling it to them at a loss. But um, yeah, so basically, I guess the TLDR of all that mess I just spewed out was that um, I'm glad that most of the hash rate is shifting to North America, specifically the United States, because I think that's the most promising theater for it to sort of develop and play out. And hopefully with positive legislation, the rest of the world will follow.
2: So a couple of things I wanted to build on uh, that Ed mentioned was yeah, the U.S. has operated as a democratic republic, right? So I think it's important to get ahead of the FUD that will certainly come probably by end of next year, which is, oh, mining is going to be centralized in the U.S. And so much of the hash rate is going to be based in the U.S. But each of the states operate quite independently, right? Um, so I think we got to look at it almost as a uh, like we look, we look at China historically as different provinces. We got to get in the habit of looking at the U.S.'s different states and how much each state has as far as hash rate goes. And we tried doing that with our some of the pool data collection that we've we've shared uh, publicly. Um, the other point I'd like to illustrate is uh, I think it's also really important that um, as our interests grow, um, that we do work closely with regulators and policymakers to educate them. Um, because I think what happened in Kazakhstan is very similar to what happened in Washington State in the very earliest days of Bitcoin mining, right? Where Bitcoin miners uh, were largely flying under the radar. And they were taking advantage of a lot of very cheap electrical rates. That's what they do. They seek out the cheapest power, but they weren't forming proper PPAs. Uh, they weren't going for the permits. Um, they were um, essentially mining in the dark intentionally because we didn't even know if this stuff was going to be uh, regulated or legal or not. Um, but I think it's important that as, especially as this industry becomes more institutionalized and more legitimate, it's important to work with regulators and not be this kind of shadowy neighbor that people are scared of uh, working with. And uh, and you see a lot of these great efforts are coming about like a windstone, right? Where they're very, very transparent with their operations. Um, all the economic stimulus, all the jobs they're creating in the area and they're working closely hand in hand with the regulators and local town boards, right? Previously, when, when people are building mining farms, um, they, would, uh, they would even show up to a lot of the town board meetings that wanted to figure out what was going on with all the noise coming out from this warehouse or whatnot, right? Uh, and, and that was sort of the case with Kazakhstan, especially in the southern region. Uh, when there's this big migration of hash rate coming out of China, um, a lot of it went to Kazakhstan because um, it was like the early days of China where um, there's a lot of abundant dormant electricity and there was a lot of PPA agreements out there for other industries. And the Chinese miners just piggybacked off the existing industries PPAs without even uh, working with regulators um, and the people that were operating the grid. And of course, when you don't actually announce how much power, you're going to use, um, you're going to destabilize things in in an area. So um, I guess the two things uh, to kind of recap that was making sure you're working with the regulators, right, Uh, and not being kind of this rogue agent, um, but also making sure that you really differentiate between where you're using the power at a state level.
0: Nick, anything to add there?
3: Yeah, I'll just reinforce what Ed and Kevin are saying. There's a huge difference between you know, the plurality of the hash rate being in a, an authoritarian single-party state like China, where one a single man basically controls policy as opposed to a highly federated country like the U.S., where um, the states are actually seizing more power for themselves relative to the the federal government. There's a number of policy issues where The states are actively asserting themselves relative to the government. COVID policy would be one great example. You know, here in Florida, it's a very, very different world from uh, in New York or Massachusetts. And I think mining is going to be no different. I think mining is going to be an exemplary issue of states' rights versus uh, federal legislation. It may be the case that we get federal legislation on mining, and uh, we get attempts to regulate it federally. At that point, I expect the states will push back. And you know, it might even become a Supreme Court issue in terms of who has jurisdiction over what. And I think the states are going to see the clear benefits. Certain states already are. Texas, best example. You know, there's obvious benefits to having flexible load on the grid, to having miners co-locate with renewables and improving the energy, uh, the, the economic profile, those renewable assets, you know, and, and obviously the revenue that, 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 that drives into the state, which is very material. You know, so we're, we're, we're literally seeing states try and promote mining as a cottage industry. Wyoming has, a, has some draft language around that as well. Um, and so I, you know, I think that's what's going to happen, basically. Like certain states like New York and California might ban it. You know, I'm, I'm not really that optimistic around New York. Um, but then there'll be others that try and cultivate a favorable environment for it. And I think ultimately in the U.S., the states are kind of the, the dominant political unit. They come first. And uh, so that makes me very positive on the long-term prospects for mining in the U.S.
0: But it's fascinating when you think about New York, because I think that most people, in, or, or you know, we've gotten the feedback before as a mining community that, you know, we thought more jobs were going to be created, right? With these like sites being built. But, you know, Kevin, you operate, Foundry operates in New York. You guys are how many people now?
2: Yeah, I think we recently just crossed 80 uh, team members and that's just immediate full-time employees, right? I think one of the things that's really important to highlight is uh, whether it's a company that's providing services like ancillary services in the mining space, or even the facilities, there's a lot of contracted jobs too. It's the economic stimulus as a whole needs to be taken into consideration. When we were working on Greenwich or even like past projects in say Montana uh, in California, um, there are times where you have um, 70 or 80 contractors that aren't directly on your payroll, but they're receiving high paying jobs, whether it's the engineering, electrical work, uh, and a lot of the general contracting goes into a lot of these different projects.
0: Yeah, it's, it's fascinating that the the narrative has been around like, oh, well, you only need like, you know, one security guard and people to plug in machines because there's been a whole ecosystem built around mining now, right? Even like financial ecosystem, right? Like we both work in minor finance, right? We both have teams based on that. Um, we have, you know, Ed, you're in Prague with a lot of people supporting slash pool too. So I think the We haven't had a lot of um, discussion around like the other types of jobs that mining has created. And I think it's a really important feature. Um, The one last thing that I've noticed that has come out over the past like three or four months is the noise related to miners. So when miners um, obviously are plugged in, right, they make a lot of noise. We've all been in a mining site. Um, One of my first ones was with Actually, Nick, remember, we went up to upstate New York to see a really cool mining site that we won't talk about because we were under NDA at the time. But, um, you know, it it is loud and it's, like, alarming a lot of the times the first time you go to one because you're, like, you don't expect it. Um, Do we think this is is a legitimate criticism? And, Kevin, I think this goes back to what you said, like, is, like, being a community member, right, and, like, being, you know, a good neighbor. Um, But is this a legitimate criticism that we should be worried about for our community?
1: um well i think we should be worried about it insofar as that we have to tackle it from a regulatory perspective i don't know how serious it is like across the entire globe but i know in like some of the scandinavian countries if you're standing 50 meters outside the building and it's not five decibels or something extremely low they're just not going to allow it because it could disrupt the, the the caribou or whatever is up there um and I'm not, you know, I'm not discounting the needs and the plight of the caribou, but um, the, the it, it's just something you have to tackle, right? It's it's something you have to face if you want to build a Bitcoin mine in that region. So we should be concerned with it insofar as that, like sometimes you just have to, uh, you know, jump through the the regulatory hoops in order to get your business set up. But there's also ways around it, right? There's just this will just drive new solutions and soundproofing uh, software solutions that allow you to, move, you know, operate your Machines more silently. I won't. There's a couple I can name off the top of my head. I'm not going to name it here, though. And um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's already solutions on the market. And then as it becomes a larger issue, there's just going to be more that present themselves. And it may be a little expensive at first. I've seen some containers that are based out of Switzerland that are completely soundproof. You know, you can barely hear a thing when you're standing right outside of them, but of course they're like twice the cost of what you would expect from a a mining container. So it's gonna take some time for that to adjust, but there'll definitely be some people willing to pay for it um, if they're faced with the the regulations I previously described.
2: Yeah, and I'll just add something real quick, which is um, even though this industry has kind of come a long way and it's a massive financial incentive with multi-billion dollars at stake, it's still in its infancy too, right? From a te- technological standpoint, um, the ASIC uh, mining hasn't really been done on a large scale for even more than a decade, right? So it's been less than a decade of uh, ASIC mining within our space. And I think especially with technologies like immersion coming out, right, that, that removes noise completely from the equation. Um, so there will be, I think, a lot of developments in the near future that will greatly change how mining will be done. Uh, and a lot of these kind of, Counter narratives won't even be kind of valid going forward.
0: Nick, anything to add there?
3: Um, just that I, I'm I'm pretty sunny on the prospects for immersion mining um, to potentially mitigate the noise issue. You guys obviously know a lot more about that than me, but uh, that's that's the direction I expect this to take.
0: And there's more than, you know, just one benefit of immersion mining, right? It's not just about the noise. It adds additional benefits for like the ability to overclock um, and to extend the lifespan of the machine. So I also, you know, in the past was pretty bearish on immersion cooling, um, but starting to see that I think that there's like a, a real great direction for it going forward. Um, I think it mainly is because we set up a small immersion mining back in 2017 and the cost was just like ridiculously expensive that it didn't make any sense at the time but if you're thinking about it longer term um and you know at a scale that makes more sense especially with like the the level of sophistication we have with asics now like you don't think that from one node to the next that the efficiency is going to jump that that much um that maybe it makes sense now right and so that's kind of been my stance on immersion um even though before ed i saw ed chuckle because he knows i've been like pretty bearish on it um so we covered energy fud. We covered, um, you know, geopolitical fud. We covered uh, data that has been coming out. Has there been any other fud that has existed within Bitcoin mining that we want to cover?
3: One interesting thing that I see is um, when we point out that miners are exploiting, you know, stranded renewables, um, that people will be indignant because they think the miners are taking the renewable energy that would otherwise be used by households or electric vehicles or whatever. And I think it's just difficult to have the conversation because most regular people that feel compelled to chime in on this have no conception of how the energy grid works. And they have this mental model of this grid where energy is teleported throughout the grid with no transmission costs or anything like that. It's just magically transported from Uh, source to to destination and so it's just hard to have that conversation explain that curtailed energy is a thing or that stranded energy is a thing or transmission bottlenecks exist.
0: But I guess that's kind of like the world we live in, right? You like move into your house, you like call your electrical company and then you can switch on a light so you don't think about it in the way until you get your bill and you see the distribution charges, um, which always was shocking to me because in, in one city that I lived in they were as equal as the charge of the cost of energy. Um, but I think you know there's a lot of there's a lot of misunderstanding about energy in the grid, and that does lead into a lot of the misconceptions about Bitcoin mining.
3: Yeah, I mean, Amanda, I, I, you might be the only one that's ever read the itemized energy bill like that to. Find the transmission charges, but uh, yeah, I mean, most people just are not aware of this concept that there may be overabundant energy in some places, and it might be difficult to transport it, and it might be impossible to transport it. I mean, West Texas cannot, you know, the excess abundant, uh, primarily renewable energy cannot be transported to the load centers with the current transmission infrastructure they have. That therein lies the opportunity.
2: Yeah, I think I think this. I was gonna add that I think the figures are quite staggering, right? It's the what they call like the Krez line, right? Uh, That can only support 13 gigawatts of renewable energy, and there's 35 plus gigawatts of energy that's stranded on the other side of that, uh, where it's energy that's literally being wasted, and they're actually not incentivized to turn on uh, because it's uh, the demand is so low for that energy.
3: Not to mention the interconnection queue you have in Texas. Enormous quantities of solar and wind to be added, and when you add a new marginal wind farm next to an established one, it makes life worse for the existing one. So the the economics get worse.
0: Ed, did you want to chime in? Sorry, I didn't want to cut you off. Nope, i good. You're good. Um, well, guys, look, energy. FUD, Bitcoin mining, I think we have done a lot of work this year collectively for this topic. I think we're going to have a lot more work to do next year for this topic. But thank you all for joining me on episode one of Hashing for the Holidays. Disappointed in all of you for not wearing Christmas gear or holiday gear. But next year, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll get that under wraps. Is that a slush pool shell? Ed? Is that what that was?
3: This is is all I have. I don't have any holiday (laughs) here.
0: Very nice. Well, thank you guys very much. We'll see you soon.
3: Thanks, Amanda. Thank you, Amanda.